poor ciudadanos, they didn't even get their own questions, but yeah, that says uh, it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to I tried to throw it in in the very end because it might be the last time we even speak of ciudadanos yeah, in the podcast. Yeah, I know. God. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Hello there and welcome back to the Europolex podcast. My name is Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is my Europolex colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you on this fine Saturday afternoon as we record? Hi. Yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. It's a crazy time, fun time for elections. Personally, just getting used to, you know, going out and about making bookings for tables and bars to try and see people. So yeah, it's kind of hectic for once, which is nice compared to how most of uh, 2021 was. Uh, how about you? Yeah, absolutely. Much of the same, really. I started a new job this week, so that's been um, very busy. Yes, this is not my full-time job, um, dear listener. I don't just do podcasts for money. I don't earn any money for this, and neither does Gabriel. But we both had the we both had the great fun and joy of getting to vote this week, didn't we? Because both of us live in the United Kingdom, and we had a huge range and raft of elections. And we'll get on to that later, uh, where I'll be talking to election expert in the UK, Ben Walker, co-founder of Britain Elects, a very similar principle to Europe Elects, but just for just for the United Kingdom. And we'll be getting a a first reaction from him and a bit of discussion between the two of us about what we think has been going on across the four nations of the United Kingdom. But it's worth noting that as we record, results are still coming in. So things may, of course, change. And I sat down with the Europlex correspondent for Spain, Ignacy Subira, who joined me briefly to discuss the Madrid regional elections that took place recently and outline sort of why it has significance for uh, the Spanish political system as a whole. So stay tuned for that coming up very shortly. But first, a little message on how you could support us and our headlines from across the continent. Europolex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and much more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro per month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. Starting our classic news segment by diving right into electoral news, we're going to go to Albania, where the national parliament election took place on April the 25th. The results were a comfortable re-election of the incumbent prime minister, Edi Rama's Socialist Party of Albania, a centre-left party associated with the Socialists and Democrats group on the European level. While a number of polls in the lead-up to the election predicted a close race, with many predicting that the centre-right coalition led by the Democratic Party would actually come out victorious based on its anti-corruption agenda. The victory of the Socialists was indeed clear. The Socialist Party got 48.7% of the vote, 74 seats, basically unchanged from the election in 2017, meaning that they control a majority of the parliamentary seats. The Democratic Party-led alliance did gain 
getting 39.4% of the vote, strengthening their place as the main opposition force in the country. On the other hand, however, the centre-left LSI, which had an agreement with the Democratic Party to form a government against the Socialist Party, had one of its worst results ever, losing 15 seats. Other than the significance of Eddie Rama managing to be elected for a third consecutive mandate, this is the first time that's happened in the country's recent history. The result will have impact on Ilya Mehta's position as the president of Albania. For more context, you'll have to find a recap of our elections on our website, um, so do check that out. On top of this, contrary to the next election we'll mention, turnout was disappointing in Albania this time around, with less than half of the electorate turning out to vote. The final figure was quite similar to 2017, around 46.3%. It was still the lowest figure since Albanian regime change in 1990s, and so not a great day for high turnout, but still lots of interesting stories going on. Gabriel. So now to Madrid. Uh, that saw a turnout of over 71% as Madrilenians headed to the polls on May 4th to elect a new regional parliament. The result seems to have tightened the noose around the socialist central government with the conservative leader of Partido Popular, Isabel Diaz Ayuso, securing 65 seats out of the 136 in the regional assembly. Uh, that came as a result of getting 44.7% of the votes. Ayuso's impressive victory notwithstanding, she will still need an alliance to achieve the majority, which she will get with the far-right Vox that gained 13 seats, uh, already having pledged its support. On the other hand, the national governing party, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, or PSOE, fell from 37 to 24 seats, so a huge tumble. And the centrist Ciudadanos' party, CS, collapsed completely, failing to reach the 5% threshold for representation. Meanwhile, the radical left UP party, led by Pablo Iglesias, won 10 seats, three more than its previous result. But however, it came only in fifth place, uh, which meant that Iglesias, who had resigned from the government to run as a candidate in these elections, spoke of a tragedy uh, when analyzing the results and announced the end of his political career. So for a bit more context on the results uh, from the elections in uh, the region of Madrid and its impact on Spanish politics nationally, we welcome our Spain correspondent at Europolex, um, Ignasi Subira. Hi, Ignasi. Hi, Gabriel. Thank you for having me. Of course, you're, you're very welcome. And obviously, these were, um, you know, very interesting um, results coming out of Madrid last week. So I thought we'd just kick off sort of in your view as, as um, a keen observer and expert at this. Um, what happened very briefly in Madrid and why is it that the capital region is so consistently uh, to the right of the political spectrum compared to both Spain as a whole, and I guess most European sort of capital regions. Yes. Uh, so as you mentioned, center-right PP had a big win in Madrid, and they have been leading this region in terms of the regional government for over 25 years. There are several reasons that are usually uh, put forward to explain to explain this continued uh, dominance in the region. One of them, of course, is the very particular uh, fiscal and economic position of this region within Spain. It has been growing economically a lot and gaining relative importance with regards to the Spanish economy as a whole. And uh, this is one of the reasons that explains the kind of uh, service uh, sector jobs and a uh, big, big role of the civil servants within the public sector as well in Madrid. And these kind of voters have been swinging consistently uh, public opinion and the electoral to the to more conservative or more economically liberal positions. Another reason could have more to do with the politics itself of uh, increasingly centralized, arguably um, Spanish uh, state 
and how Madrid benefits and it's both at the core of this of this political power and of, of course these parties such as PP uh, really benefit and contribute to to this political centralization in Madrid another reason um, this has more to do with the turnout but this has been put forward in the past as uh, as if left-wing voters were less prone to voting in the election but it has been proved repeatedly that increased turnout does not necessarily benefit the left as we saw yeah this week with this last election and finally and this is more structural i think that the experience of many many years of, of pp-led governments and an overall uh, good experience from from voters i guess has has been making them more close to these positions and it's hard to have a turning point against this party it has dominated for so long yeah so i guess naturally if the pp and the center right and the hard right for that matter had a good good night the left uh, did not um so in this case um left wing podemos party did especially poorly at least the result had repercussions for its party leader can you just explain a bit what happened with podemos in madrid and the repercussions that had uh, in your view yeah so podemos obviously as a very uh, recent phenomenon uh, probably peaked in the 2015-2016 general elections. Since then, all polls have been showing a steady decline. And even if last time they managed to get an OK result and be part of the government, it looks like their momentum um, is clearly yeah, in the past now. So at some point, the leader of, of uh, Unidas Podemos, the left-wing party, who was the vice president of the government, Pablo Iglesias, decided that it would be better off for the for the party to run his candidacy in Madrid and make sure that they would enter parliament because there is a very uh, demanding 5 5% threshold to enter parliament but not not even this experiment turned out so well and i guess he saw that probably his time in the party is, is over as a contributing factor and he decided that the new leadership might be better for the party so yeah, he's basically resigning from all roles in, in the organization and in regional and national governments. So really quickly as well, I, I thought I'd ask this, Ignasi. So Podemos actually did increase the vote share a little, little bit, as did Mas Madrid, who's this other left-wing force that actually became the biggest left-wing force after the center-left PSOE saw a huge um, decrease. Just really quickly for listeners who might not be aware of Mas Madrid, what makes them different from both Podemos and PSOE, would you say? Yeah, so uh, Mas Madrid is basically a splinter of, of Podemos. Its, its national leader, Inigo Rejón, was number two to Podemos Iglesias for a long time. Um, they're in more probably moderate positions than Podemos. They also have a very clear green profile. They run with a, with a green party called ECO, both nationally and regionally. And compared to PSOE, it's probably, they're probably appealing to a more uh, to a younger, more educated uh, sectors of, of the population. So it, it's not a direct competitor to any of the two parties, but obviously they have eaten up much of the electorate of both. And that's why that's the key of their good showing in Madrid. And finally, what will the results from these elections mean for the Spanish political system at a national level? Is it more that it's a reflection of trends nationally, or do you think this can have in itself an effect on on national politics from now on 
Yeah, so no, this is a question that has been a lot on, on, on the news and on the political debate these last days. And I think, of course, the main lesson from, from Madrid, the main story, is that PP under certain kinds of leadership from more of the right-wing positions like Isabel Díaz Ayuso, the regional leader, they can manage to unite all the right bloc parties and not lose to either Vox or Ciutadans on both sides. So I think this is a lesson that PP might have to learn for a national election. But again, Madrid is a very, very particular uh, political landscape and a, a region within Spain, so it's not all applicable. At the same time, I think that the left has seen how even if they run an arguably good campaign and they try to unite and complement each other, they will need more to remain uh, relevant at the national level and they will really need to rethink what the strategy is going forward. And uh, as for the other parties, I think this is just a confirmation of, of Ciudadanos losing relevance um, overall in Spain and Vox probably consolidating in the hard right, in the right-wing positions, even if, um, again, depending on the kind of PP they have, they will face more or less competition within this block. I think that summarized it um, very well for, for everyone listening. You now have a crash course in, in Spanish electoral politics as it stands in, in May 2021. Um, thank you so much, Ignasi, for, for coming on, and I'm sure I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you very much and yeah, hope to speak to you very soon again. So now we'll head over to Northern Ireland, where the side effects of Brexit, as well as clashes and protests brought on by historic religious tensions, uh, led to the resignation of First Minister Arlene Foster. Foster has announced she will be stepping down as leader of the Conservative and Christian Fundamentalist Democratic Unionist Party on May 28th and resigning from the post of First Minister, which is the regional head of government, uh, by the end of June. Uh, her decision came after many of the DUP's members uh, of the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, in Stormont, Belfast, as well as half of the party's MPs in Westminster called for new leadership. The main issue of contention is the DUP's support for Brexit, which ended up establishing a trade border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. The race to replace Foster has obviously begun already. We know how politics works, uh, starting with party elections for the new DUP leader, which will take place on May 14th. This is due to become the first in which a new leader will be decided by vote, as both Foster and her predecessor, Peter Robinson, were elected heads of the DUP unopposed. Whoever is elected will have a tough job ahead, uh, clearly maintaining a hold on Northern Ireland executive government. New elections could be called if parties do not agree on who will replace Foster as First Minister within seven days after she officially steps down. So it's definitely something to monitor. Speaking of new elections being called, in some not all very surprising news, Bulgaria will be headed back to the polls on July 11th. The snap elections were called after no party managed to form a government following the April 4th election. The election saw a restructure of the Bulgarian political system with ruling centre-right GERB losing 20 seats, centre-left BSP-led alliance losing 37, and the electoral coalitions Democratic Bulgaria and ISMV getting 27 and 14 seats respectively. But more importantly, the new populist party ITN of Bulgarian late-night TV host Slavi Trifonov, reaching second place with 51 seats. So now we're going to discuss MEP shifts, because there have been a few, especially regarding affiliation shifts uh, that we've seen during the past week in favour of the centre-right European People's Party. The EPP still has some way to go before it can reclaim the 12 lost deputies from Fidesz, uh, as it has gained just three new members from Germany and Italy. Not surprisingly, they um, come over from the ECR group and the group of uh, non-inscrits uh, that are unaffiliated in the House. 
The first MEP who shifted allegiance comes from the European Conservatives and Reformists, uh, and is the MEP Helmut Geuking, um, the sole MEP of the Family Party of Germany, Familie, a minor party in, uh, in the country that, among other things, advocate for a right to vote for children that would be carried out by their legal guardians. Italian former Lega MEP Andrea Caroppo also left the non-inscripts block, such as it is, to enter the warm centre-right embrace of the EPP. His travels had begun when Caroppo left Lega and the Identity and Democracy Group in August 2019, shortly after being elected. Yeah, so he finally found a home at the European Parliament. The second Italian recruit for the European People's Party comes from the Five Star Movement that currently sits with the non inscrit group in the European Parliament. And her name is Isabella Adinolfi. And after having sat with the Europe for Freedom and Direct Democracy group uh, with her party colleagues and later finding herself sitting with the non inscrit like I like I said, and failing to join Alde, who is the predecessor of Renew Europe. She's now left the Five Stars movement to join Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, which sits with the European People's Party in the European Parliament. So Isabella's also been been around the block at the EU, but um, has now uh, settled with the EPP. So yeah, some positive gains for them for sure. Now let's go on to some polling highlights of who's up and who's down across European polling. So after entering the Dutch Parliament with three seats in the March election, Eurofederalist party Volt, which sits with the Greens and European Free Alliance Group in the European Parliament, reached a record high of 3.9%, six projected seats, in the latest INO research poll in the Netherlands. The same poll shows quite a fall for the centre-right CDA to just 6.4% from the 9.5% they got in parliamentary elections. For another record high, we can look to Estonia, where Martin Helmer's right-wing ECRE received 23.9% in the latest Norstat poll. The party has been rising recently, especially after the new government coalition that saw ECRE leaving, so they're getting a bounce from uh, joining the opposition there. On the other side, we have a new record low for the Liberal Ciudadanos in Spain. Following their implosion in the Madrid regional elections, the Liberal Party received just 2.3% in the latest Demoscopia poll and 1.2% in the latest Invimark poll. That's their lowest poll result since 2014. If repeated in an election, this would be the party's worst result since 2008, which was the first time they ever contested an election. In other polling news, three separate polls have been released ahead of the Zagreb mayoral elections taking place next week, showing Green left Mojemo MP Tomislav Tomacevich being the clear front runner with 40% in a Promosia Plus poll, 36% in an Actor Public poll and 44% in an Ipsos poll. Tomasevich was also a candidate in the previous mayoral elections in 2017, receiving just 3.9% of the vote. So he's seen quite the jump, and it's obviously interesting with a green left candidate gaining in um, Croatia, which typically is quite a centrist place. So there's green success at the local level around Europe. And the final piece of polling news from this week is that the centrist Freya Vila, free voters in English, appeared for the first time in the latest Infratest DMAP poll in Germany. The party reached 3%, the highest vote share uh, FW have ever received in a national poll. The threshold in the upcoming German elections is, of course, 5%. So it's not quite enough yet, but they're not also too far off. Not too far off. It'll be interesting. Uh, German elections coming up for sure. Lots of things to... Uh, observe and we'll obviously be covering them won't we Ewan <laughs> through the summer and the fall oh we will <laughs> so yeah and um, we'll definitely be looking at the polls very closely so 
In our final story this episode, we would like to touch on an important aspect of our work here at Europlex. So as I'm assuming a lot of you will know, every poll that comes out of any of the EU27 is plugged into our EU polling tracker at Europlex. Um, so we can keep an eye on shifts across the continent and help to predict what's coming in the European Parliament election in 2024. Released last week, our monthly Europolex European Parliament projection calculates which parties and parliament groups each of the 705 seats would go to based on recent polling. This month saw the centre-left Socialists and Democrats take the biggest hit, losing seven seats Europe-wide on last month's projection, reflecting of Bulgarian BSP and Italian LEU downturn in recent polls, with the latter falling below the electoral threshold and thus losing all their seats. The centre EPP continued to have a tough time as well, projected to receive 158 seats, down 24 from the 2019 election and one from last month. So uh, a weak month for the um, centre-right and the centre-left UN. Meanwhile, the Greens EFA group have had a good month, with the Greens surging in Germany, helping out the group gain four seats on last month's projection, but still an overall decrease from their 2019 results. Meanwhile, the National Conservative ECR group hit their highest total since losing the British Conservatives to Brexit, netting 75 seats in our projection, placing them as the fourth largest group. In large part, this performance gain can be put down to the improving performances of Brothers of Italy or Fratelli d'Italia in Italy. For more details on this, the full numbers and the popular vote projections go to our website, europelex.eu, where you'll see all of the numbers plus some contextualization from one of our colleagues. Now stick around to hear me chat to Britain Elect's Ben Walker coming right up after this. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email at podcast at europolex.eu. Hi there, folks, and welcome back to the Europolex podcast. With me today is a real stalwart of the Poland community in Europe. It is Ben Walker, the co-founder of Britain Alex, which does a lot of similar things to Europolex, if you haven't heard of it, except just in the United Kingdom. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, we've had a really interesting few days, a very slow count, thanks to coronavirus, um, and what is a mass of elections, essentially two election days, last year's and this year's, rolled into one. It's been a, a slow count, but there's lots to talk about. Let's start with Wales, as it's the place we have a full result set for, of results that came in first. That's the, the region of Wales. Listeners, if you don't know, it's one of the four constituent countries of the United Kingdom, where the incumbent Labour, Socialist and Democrat-affiliated centre-left party, have held on to their position as the largest party and actually increased their share of seats by one. Ben, can you just help us unpack why have Labour been successful there and why have you know they managed to stay in power now? This will be their 20th year in power. 
Yeah. So, so let's let's just remind ourselves what we're comparing with. Uh, the 2021 Senate election used to be a part, used to be an assembly. Now it's a parliament. Uh, last ha- had its elections in 2016, just before the EU referendum, just before well, the the, the political realignment that happened since then. So back then we had UKIP uh, assembly members being elected, seven of them. Now there are none. Okay. So the UKIP vote in Wales has been up for grabs, and that's why if you go on the Wikipedia pages, if you've got any sort of results coverage, you'll know the first and second party, second place parties have both seen an increase in their vote share. That is because both Labour and the Conservatives have been successful in, in taking uh, these, these, these former UKIP voters, these UKIP voters very strongly leave, very uh, identitarian, strong about identity and, and all that kind of stuff. In Wales, what's quite interesting and what separates it from, from England and, and Scotland and really just general coverage of social democratic politics really is that Labour is seen as, as a party very much in tune with Welsh identity. And as a consequence of that, leave voters in Wales uh, who, who are UKIP voters in Wales, who are very strong on identity, both British and Welsh, Labour's been good at picking those people, picking those voters up. And as a consequence, it's because of that they've been able to hold on to seats that form part of the, the, the horrible term, Red Wall, if you've heard about it. Uh, These the seats such as Wrexham, Dellin, Allen and Deeside, uh, basically they're, they're some of their old heartlands in North Wales. It's helped them hold on to it. And uh, yeah, and then the t- but, but nonetheless, the Conservatives have been the biggest beneficiaries in, in netting five seats compared to Labour's one. Uh, Plaid Cymru, however, have seen a small drop in vote share and, and uh, perhaps an iconic result for them was the loss of the Ronda, Leanne Wood's seat. Um, she, she gained it in 2016 against a uh, quite a dramatic fall in Labour's vote back then, and but now she, she lost it to, uh, to a Labour regain. The Liberal Democrats, uh, not much to say there, nothing exciting. They, 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 they won one seat in the region and, and will continue being part of, probably continue being part of the coalition with the Liberal Democrats. Greens, Reform Party, the Abolish Party, the party wanting to abolish the Welsh Parliament, uh, they, they didn't get enough votes to get on any representation really nothing much to say for them yeah absolutely there's a few interesting stories there would draw out particularly the Plaid Cymru story listeners will or may know that Plaid Cymru are a pro-independence party for Wales and their former leader Leanne Wood is, is largely responsible for taking the party from a more fringe sort of position in Welsh politics or at least in the national idea of Welsh politics to a more serious player and she was replaced as leader last year by another member of the senate called Adam Price and her losing that seat is probably quite a significant blow for the party as she is sort of one of the only well-known names within the party as a whole and like you say abolished the Welsh assembly as well not getting any uh, seats there after some projections had thought that they might get a couple you know it, it would be very odd to have a party there that doesn't want to be there and doesn't want anyone else to be there but it's rather like having yeah so that's a UKIP in the European Parliament yes exactly yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing our many Eurosceptic parties in the European Parliament that you listener will know about so we've looked at a little bit of Wales there now in another constituent country another regional parliament was being elected a Scottish parliament uh, in Scotland where uh, there had been talk of you know, a, a real Labour collapse or shift and a massive boost in the uh, pro-independence majority. But actually, things have really stayed very similar. In fact, there's only been two or three seat changes as a whole um, between this election and the previous one in 2016. I guess, you know, it's another incumbent government being re-elected. Are we seeing just vaccine bounces and 
you know, coronavirus rally around the flag factors going on here for Nicola Sturgeon and her pro-independence SNP? You know, I, I, I was thinking at the start, well, well, as we were seeing news of Wales, decent results for Labour, I was thinking, yeah, we are seeing in the UK, unlike what we're seeing in Germany with the Vice and the Greens, we're seeing sort of a, a boost for the incumbents. We're seeing a very serious, very large incumbency bonus. We, we tend to see that in our parliamentary elections, but not perhaps on the on, on the scale we're seeing here. Hard to quantify though, so sort of just take what I'm saying here with a little bit of a pinch of salt. In Scotland though, um, yes, uh, the, the Nicola Sturgeon Scottish National Party is looking set to really be virtually unchanged when compared to 2016. If not, maybe one or two seats down. I did some modelling for this for the New Statesman. We had them on, I think it was 62-63, which is two, one, one or two down on, on their previous score. At the moment, it's looking likely they're going to be getting that. And at the start of the campaign, even before the campaign, we had something called the Salmon Sturgeon Saga, which uh, I'm, I'm, I hope some listeners will understand in that it, the, 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 the news of, of, a, of a first minister being caught up in a storm with a former colleague is likely to damage her favourability, right? It, it's negative news, it's likely to damage her, and it did at the time. But at the end of it, once she was uh, basically virtually acquitted, uh, her favourability, her party, her poll started to jump up again. But over the course of the campaign, it knows that again. It, it, the party, the SNP, are currently projected to get a share of the vote that is seven points below where they were polling in February. That's pre- that's a pretty st- uh, stark st- decline, as it as it were, compared to their, uh, if you want to call it this, uh, bounce is what their COVID bounce. Scottish Labour has basically, I, I would I would argue, has had a pretty good campaign. The person whose favourability has uh, soared through the roof, uh, Anasawa, or well, maybe not through the roof, maybe. Just just through the first floor, Anasawa, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, has had a good election. And it's looking like that a few months ago, his party was expected to lose all their constituency MSPs. Now, at the moment, they're on course. Well, actually, tell a lie. They've already got two of them down one because uh, of some uh, a, bit, a bit of poor effort at tactical voting. Nonetheless, though, it's not looking likely that Scottish Labour will come second. The, the, the polls showed it could have been tight. Our modelling suggested it could have been tight. But at the moment, moment we it looks like uh, the scottish conservatives will remain in second place douglas ross who whose favorability uh, in the total inverse to anasawa his his numbers went uh, through the floor really he's had a bad campaign but his party which has always been very anti-SNP, very anti-second referendum virtually the antithesis of everything the SNP is they've been able to position themselves as that and benefit electorally uh, in, in so far as staying in second place. Yeah, it's interesting. And just comparing the Welsh and the Scottish results, I'm minded to think about the fact that, you know, this is a young devolution system. This isn't like the founding of the United Kingdom was founded on, mm. you know, devolved parliaments. This is only a sort of 24-year-old system or 23-year-old system. And I wonder if the pandemic has actually done very good things in terms of the popularity of the devolution system because of the way that the the pandemic has forced the leaders of the two regional parliament or three regional parliaments right into the public eye on the TV every week, um, sort of because they've taken direct leadership of their region's response to the coronavirus. It's almost like voters now know who, well, in, in Wales at least, voters now know who their first minister is. I, I, I would love to, I, I can't remember, I may have seen polls about public awareness of who leaders are, but I remember in 2016, public awareness of Carwin Jones, the then uh, first minister for Wales, wasn't, say, 
as high as the numbers we're seeing now. If, if Mark Drakeford, whilst not necessarily, let's be honest, not, not necessarily a charismatic chap, he has the he he now is a figure in Welsh politics among Welsh voters, and you can see that in the jump in turnout. The jump in turnout in Scotland is much bigger. It has been the the campaign. I, I, I don't know about you. you you're you're in, you're you're in Glasgow. I, I found the campaign quite enjoyable. I feel like it's actually mattered, and voters have been switched on. Of course, you do have signs of uh, what is it? Turnout. I think is up eight points compared to 2016 in some areas. According to uh, various Lib Dems, Labour, SNP uh, activists on the ground, they say it's as close to referendum levels. Might be exaggeration, but but yeah, there's been done some definite engagement this election in Scotland. Yeah, the turnout increase has been really interesting, and. Uh, I think has heartened a lot of people about engagement in Scottish politics, for better or for worse. And I think both sides are claiming this as a victory, and to some extent, because the SNP are just shy of a majority in uh, Scotland. And so those who are against the second referendum say that they don't have a mandate for it. But the SNP, because the SNP plus the other pro-independence party, the Scottish Green Party, together have a majority. They're saying that they do have a majority for another referendum. I mean, of course, both both sides are going to spin things how they want to spin. But I think this campaign has really sobered up people, I guess, to the reality of the fact that there's going to be a pretty tough fight over the future of Scotland over the next four or five years, even if it felt a bit far off before now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, one thing that's always stuck with me throughout this campaign is that um, the Scottish Tories have been able to position themselves as the anti-ref, anti-second ref party, right? Uh, and they've done it pretty successfully insofar as it's looking like they're going to come out second and potentially a quite clear second, something some polls weren't, weren't suggesting. One data point that always stuck with me throughout the campaign was this, is that when voters in Scotland were asked on, asked on um, when should a second referendum on Scottish independence be, uh, and the option to... Uh, the option that, that there shouldn't be a referendum was also put to voters. Um, only about 32% of voters said there should never be a referendum on Scottish independence again. You had virtually two thirds of Scots saying there should be one one day. Um, you had, I think it was like one in five said it should be in the next two years. The rest were saying it should be somewhere after that. So, so, the, so the general agreement among Scots for a second referendum is there. The timing, however, is not. And I think that kind of sentiment about, um, you know, Anasawa saying, don't have it now. Well, he never really said have it soon, did he? Uh, <laughs> you, 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 he just said not now. They just said, yeah, if you have figures who say not now, it's kind of like opening the door. It's keeping the door open for it to have be had one day. And I think that's one of the contributing reasons why Anasawa's favourability was pretty good, right? He wasn't exactly turning anyone off. He was favourable enough amongst Scottish Tories to get enough tactical voters in Dumbarton, Jackie Bailey's constituency. She was in the fight for her life, uh, and uh, Edinburgh Southern or Edinburgh South. Uh, so, 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 Anasawa has been able to sort of straddle that that very tight line in Scotland between by being favourable among both yes voters and no voters. It definitely is signs of divide. In Scotland, this is just the final point I think I'll make on Scotland is that you've seen strong tactical voting by Greens not standing in a lot of constituencies, which has allowed the SNP to hoover up the uh, pro-independence vote, but a lot of swings towards the second large, the sort of the largest unionist party or the second party in, in a constituency from the Conservatives, from the Liberal Democrats, from the Labour Party um, to centre in one place so that People think they have a strong voice, and that's the nature of a hybrid system with first past the post in built on it, is that you do get that tactical voting. It can perhaps uh, 
change the narrative a little bit as to what people's actual voting intentions are when you compare that to the list voting intentions. But it's still been very interesting to see that people are very willing to hold their nose and vote for a party they didn't want, wouldn't normally for the sake of the constitutional settlement of Scotland. Yeah, I, I, I uh, absolutely. You've seen that in, in in some areas, like I say, Dumbarton, Scottish Tories uh, uh, moving on mass to Labour to help them win. I think you also saw an attempt in what was it, Clyde Clydesbank? I think it was. Yeah, you, you saw a de- decent attempt from Scottish Tories to back Labour, and they got close, but not close enough. There was an attempt in Caithness, Sutherland, which is one constituency north of Inverness. If you've got a map of Scotland open, and uh, there was an attempt by the Liberal Democrats to overturn an SNP majority there. Not enough Scottish Tories and not enough Scottish Labour voters were were willing to back the Lib Dems there. There's something that that, that about about uh, I, I keep talking about Scottish Labour, but I think it's a particularly key point. Whilst I talk and whilst you, myself and, and, and you and talk quite regularly about uh, uh, the, the divisions in Scotland, there is something else as well among Scottish Labour that's quite unique, is that there are a great number of voters, perhaps, I don't know, 20 to 30% of them, who aren't as bothered about the union, the constitutional question, as other issues. So you have Scottish um, uh, Labour voters who aren't willing to tactically vote Conservative to keep the SNP out. There's a lot of Scottish Labour voters out there who are happy to vote Labour, but at, the ta- but at the same time, happy to say they would vote yes to Scottish independence in the second referendum, right? Uh, and you, you definitely saw that in multiple constituencies up and down the country. Basically, if Scottish Labour voters were given the choice between voting an SNP candidate or voting a Tory candidate, you could be, it would be fair to say they would split. They would split quite evenly. And that's something about uh, that that kind of ruins the narrative a little bit about uh, the pro-union parties banding together to keep the SNP out because, well, a lot of uh, pro-union voters aren't as as mo- are, are quite happy. Well, I would say about one in 10 pro-union voters are quite happy with Nicola Sturgeon so far. Absolutely. So we've talked about uh, Wales and Scotland. And now let's have a look at England, obviously the largest uh, of the four countries in the UK. And... There's been uh, hundreds of local uh, elections, sort of lowest level or second lowest level of the British government system, including some slightly more powerful metro mayors, they're called, mayors of sort of urban conglomerations. And there's been some uh, mixed results um, for both the Conservatives and the Labour Party. Obviously, we've seen uh, in the West Midlands, for example, the Birmingham region, um, the second city of the UK, we've seen the Conservative candidate incumbent uh, manage to increase his majority over the Labour Party. Meanwhile, in the Southwest and the Southeast, we've seen Labour candidates beat out incumbent Tory candidates. Is there a narrative that we can draw from any of this, Ben? Ah, where to begin? Right. Uh, this is difficult. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Right. So, so, so some, some viewers may remember the 2019 general election result was a disaster for the Labour Party insofar as Conservatives uh, scoring stunning victories, not even by the tightest of margins, but huge majority wins in certain seats that have never voted anything but Labour since 1935. Okay, that, that, that's what we saw in 2019. You saw, you may have heard the term red wall, and I said it by pinching my nose earlier, but um, red wall seats, these kinds of seats, less well off than the national average, tends to vote leave. Low level, lower levels of education than national average, pretty deprived in some areas, but not all, right? These moved en masse to the Conservative Party in 2019. 
Now, this year round, we had elections which were last up in 2016 and 17, long before this movement in Red Wall England. What we saw in much of these areas, places around Manchester, places around Birmingham, places around Newcastle and in Sunderland, we saw basically that happening all over again. Okay, so seats up in 2016 are now feeling the full force of the 2019 effect, which is basically they now suddenly like the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is now relevant to them. It can, it can, it can be seen to represent something. And you, you see that in places like Grimsby, which is on the coast, uh, the east coast of England, has a has or continues to have in some form a fishing industry, voted in huge numbers for the Conservative Party. Most seats up then were Labour, not anymore. Same in bits of Rotherham, which is around Sheffield, if you, in Yorkshire, my, my, my homeland, um, uh, big swings to the Conservative Conservatives there, big swings around Manchester. But at the same time, at the same time, there's a bit of nuance going on. So you had parties such as the Greens and the Liberal Democrats. They were scoring some pretty significant gains in more affluent, middle class, well-to-do Labour heartlands. So we're talking around Liverpool. Liverpool is has seen quite a bit of an economic recovery in the past 20 to 30 years. It's become a bit more affluent, well-to-do. People live there to commute and whatnot. And as a consequence, those voters have become a bit more... Uh, uh, the more middle class you get, the more the more the more time you have to think about other issues apart from economic insecurity, right? Uh, and what we saw in those areas were people turning to the Greens and the Lib Dems because, well, these councils, these local areas weren't being well handled, very handled very well by Labour administrations. It was kind of showing the power of local politics at play here. So, so you saw the Greens breaking through, not, not in huge numbers, but in decent enough numbers to warrant a, warrant a line in a news story in some pretty affluent middle-class areas, likewise the Liberal Democrats. Down south, though, because I was just talking about the north there. This is this is going to take quite a while. I do apologise you. <laughs> uh, down south, though, it's not the obvious, not the opposite, but something particularly interesting. Lib Dems scoring decently around Cambridge, but not inside Cambridge. The Labour Party, since the days of Jeremy Corbyn, has now been able to reposition itself to be more attractive to these types of Lib Dem voters, right? Middle class, affluent, uh, I would say middle of the road types, right? And they've been able to do that by holding on to seats such as Cambridge, by seats such as Canterbury as well, okay? But in the countryside areas where Labour is nowhere, the Lib Dems have been able to position to themselves as the anti-Tory alternative has scored pretty well. But in coastal towns on the southern coast of England, uh, you're seeing a slight recovery in Labour's fortunes. You're seeing it in places like Folkestone. You're seeing it in places like Margate, once a UKIP heartland, right? And, and uh, just a bit too nuanced to say this. While Labour is, is enduring a repeat of the disaster of 2019 in the north, in the south, they're seeing slight glimmers of some gains. In the west of England, which is Bristol and Bath, yes, uh, middle-class professional uh, cities, well, city, rather, um, the Labour gained it, gained the mayoralty off the Conservatives. In Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, similar demographics, affluent, middle-class, well-to-do, professional, Labour gained it off the Conservatives, thanks to enough Liberal Democrat voters voting tactically, of all, second-preferencing uh, the Labour candidate i hope that made a lot of sense or any sense you heard it here first folks um we need to use some nuance when discussing reasons for voting and results in politics i know it's not going to be too popular with everyone but i think it might 
be important. I think that's probably all we're going to have time for today, as there simply are too many elections to talk about. But thank you, Ben, so much for coming on to the podcast. Happy to help. Happy to help. All the best. Absolutely. This has been really, really interesting. We hope to have you on again at some point again, perhaps if there is another election in the United Kingdom at some point. Well, perhaps Northern Ireland later this year or a snap early general election, question mark. Oh, don't start. Don't start. We do have a Batley and Spenby election, similar to Hartlepool. Uh, could be exciting. Labour in trouble if, if they don't decide to up their game and... Yeah. Absolutely. Not to mention Adrian Schotts and Cheshire Manamishan. Oh, yeah. Just to remind <laughs> you that all English places sound weird and have strange names. Thanks very much for listening, folks. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and, of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. So out of it today. Yeah, same. So tired. Um, so tired.